0: The Buddha's teaching was all around suffering and the end of suffering. And in his very first discourse on the Four Noble Truths, he said that uh, our obligation or our endeavor with regard to the first noble truth, the truth of suffering was to understand it. That's what's to be done in regard to the first noble truth. So the understanding of suffering is really the starting point for the whole path And when we look at the extent of suffering in the world and think that we need to bring an understanding to that, it seems uh, too complex. It seems kind of overwhelming. The reach of suffering in the world and all the causes and conditions for that suffering to arise. In our daily life, you probably know, as I know, people with really difficult family situations, relationship situations, personal situations that just seem very hard to sort out or understand. A uh, son is using drugs and his life has uh, fallen apart and can't, he can't support himself. An aging mother is developing Alzheimer's, uh, advanced Alzheimer's, and the family can't afford a facility to provide the kind of care that she really needs. Or uh, the head of the household has uh, lost their job in the current economic downturn and there's no source of income for the family to be able to support themselves. These kinds of situations are, are, are all over on an individual level. On a societal level, there's the plague through, you know, throughout society, wherever we look, of poverty, racism, inequality and injustice, people not being able to be uh, supported and cared for adequately. And on a global level, humans are getting really close to uh, ruining the planet that gave birth to us through climate change and global warming. And along with that, a mass extinction of, of species is expected. So all these conditions from the personal level to the societal level to the global level can seem uh, too much, impossible to, to figure out or resolve. Sometimes that's why it's nice to come into retreat. Because the question of suffering becomes a lot simpler. As we settle in here, and in a way we are stepping out of The broader societal problems and family problems for a while, then we bring that intention to understand suffering back to a very personal level. In our direct experience, what is the source of suffering? And it soon becomes apparent when I get into retreat that there are basically only three kinds of suffering. There's bodily pain, which can come from just The posture and sitting too long, it may come from illness, it may come from injury, but there's bodily pain in all its different manifestations. There's not much that we can do about that through meditation practice often. Sometimes it will change as we go, but we can't always control it. Then there's mental pain, or you could say emotional pain, and we're familiar with all the different kinds of uh, afflictive emotions that can visit us qualities like um, loneliness and fear, anxiety, anger, wanting or yearning, sadness and grief. All of these emotions visit both in our daily life, but here we really get to see them um, as our common uh, companions. In Mahayana Buddhism, it said there are 84,000 of these afflictive emotions. That gives a sense of, of the extent. But that was from a long time ago, and life was simpler then. So, you know, they've they've probably doubled by now. So these are the two main things we deal with again and again, physical pain, mental or emotional pain. And then as meditators, we have a third kind of pain that people in the world don't have, and that's frustrated meditations. So we can come down and intend to connect with the breath or the body and yet the mind wanders. And when we notice that, sometimes that can get really frustrating. It wanders and we fall into sleepiness. And so we have the pain of meditation that doesn't accomplish the goal that we intended to accomplish, this quality of a wandering mind. Now if you go out and ask the general person in the street, did your mind wander very much today? Number one, they wouldn't know what you were talking about. Number two, they wouldn't care. But as meditators, we have this privileged circle of pain (laughs) that we we deal with. Restlessness, lack of stability, wandering mind, lack of concentration. But tonight, I want to talk particularly about this second kind, the uh, kind of pain that comes from difficult emotions or afflictive emotions. These are the source of most of the big sufferings in our lives, sometimes in retreat, or in our daily life. These are the emotions that are stirred up by the encounters with life, which take many different forms. And I'm sure you've seen um, that if people don't understand these emotional reactions, they can be really debilitating. The experiences of depression or anxiety or grief or panic can be so overwhelming in someone's daily life, that they are no longer able to function effectively. So these can be a very big burden in outer life. They can be a very big burden in retreat life. I think one of the biggest blessings of mindfulness meditation is that we can learn to work with all these states. When we bring the meditation to bear on them, we can start to understand them they all become workable so originally i came into meditation and i was really drawn by kind of the image of the zen master who had conquered all these emotions and eliminated them and i had the idea that you know at a certain level of development i would have about as much emotion as this stone buddha <laughs> behind me oh well, that was kind of a misunderstanding that was kind of a youthful idealistic misunderstanding in my understanding now, we don't aim in the, in the near and medium term to get rid of these states at all. Maybe in the long term, someone like the Buddha or a fully enlightened being has managed to free his or her mind from all the influence of the difficult and painful emotions. I believe in that possibility. But in our, let's say, medium range practice goals, that Uh, needn't be our aim. It's a little unrealistic. But what we can aim for is to explore these states of mind, and in the exploration, understand them so much that a lot of the sting is taken out of them. And in that way, a certain amount of confidence comes into our lives and our practice that whatever life throws at us, And however the heart responds, we have the tools to deal with it. And what I really love about our practice that we've uh, gotten from our teachers is the range of these tools at our disposal. So the tools of mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, give us enough to be able to understand this whole range of difficult emotions and bring them into workability so that we can be with them um, and suffer less and less and less as our practice develops. This is from Pema Chodron. In all kinds of situations, we can find out what is true simply by studying ourselves in every nook and cranny, in every black hole and bright spot, whether it's creepy, splendid, frightening, joyful, inspiring, peaceful, or wrathful. We can just look at the whole thing. There's a lot of encouragement to do this and meditation gives us the method. So I feel this is really true. This journey opens up an exploration that is very interesting and also rewarding and one of the most immediate sources of freedom from our meditation practice. Classically, This area of meditation comes under the third foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the foundation that concerns itself with what in Pali is called citta, which is generally translated as mind. The Pali word is C-I-T-T-A. The general translation is mind, but it doesn't just mean conceptual mind. Citta means both emotional states as well as the thinking part of the mental activity. So sometimes we call it the heart-mind, heart and mind together. In Thai, the Thai language, um, where I practiced for a while, the word for mind is jit, which is a direct um, steal from the Pali word chitta. So if you ask a Westerner where their mind is, most of us will point here. But if you ask a Thai person where their mind is, they will point here to the center of the chest. And this is where they understand the jit to be. And in Buddhist thinking, there are also a lot of texts that point to the center or the root of the mind being in the heart center, the center of the chest, and not connected with the brain. So there's a, there's a nice story that illustrates this. You all know that there's a lot of neuroscience research now that's investigating the effects of meditation to scientifically validate it. And one of the foremost researchers and one of the uh, men who got the whole thing going is a a PhD at the University of Wisconsin in Madison named Richie Davidson. And I don't know if he tells his professional colleagues this, but the fact is he was a long-time Vipassana meditator first. And he got the idea that he would like to validate through science the effects of meditation that he had discovered for himself. So his work was inspired from the beginning by an aim to um, validate meditation in the eyes of the scientific community and the wider world. He d- he's developed over the years a great friendship with the Dalai Lama who also strongly supported this project and Richie was the one who did the kind of groundbreaking work where they took uh, senior Tibetan lamas and placed them in these MRI machines, and then mapped their brains through various advanced states of meditation. And they're kind of off the charts in the areas of um, stillness and compassion and happiness. It came out dramatically uh, different than anything that scientists had seen before. So the Dalai Lama invited Richie to Dharamsala, the Dalai Lama's home, to talk about the research and maybe to demonstrate some of the effects. So, Richie couldn't exactly ship an MRI machine over there. It's kind of bigger than a station wagon. So, what he took over was a cap made of leather with strips going down uh, along the back, along the top of the head. And from the strip uh, were, were hung electrodes that penetrated down to the scalp and by the brain's electrical activity that would stimulate different electrodes depending on their location and each electrode was wired to a computer so as they carried out the experiments the um, electrodes were sending signals to the computer and the computer could generate kind of a map of the brain's activity it's a simpler form of what they were doing in the MRI so Ritchie was demonstrating this equipment in Dharamsala to His Holiness and about 500 Tibetan monks. So he put this uh, black leather cap on with the electrodes and the 30 wires dangling off the back of it, running into a computer, and he felt pretty silly. It doesn't, it doesn't look very noble. And at the end of his demonstration, the monks broke up laughing. And Ritchie thought it was because he had looked so silly. But a Tibetan monk stood up and said, um, no, we were laughing because you think you're going to measure the mind up here, but everybody knows it's actually located here in the chest. Ha, 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 So they thought it was just silly to try and measure the mind here. So we talked a little bit with Richie about how we could possibly measure uh, the impulses around the heart, but we haven't figured that one out yet. So this is the terrain of the third foundation of mindfulness from the Satipatthana Sutta. And that section of the Sutta, the ancient text, begins like this. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Understanding that mind here includes both heart and mind. And by the way, in this context, uh, bhikkhu, which normally refers to an ordained monk, the commentaries say refers to a sincere practitioner of this meditation. So in the context of this sutta and this retreat, we are all fulfilling this term of bhikkhus for the purpose of of meditation. How does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. She understands mind affected by hatred as mind affected by hatred, and mind unaffected by hatred as mind unaffected by hatred. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. So this quotation revolves around these three qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion. You can recognize two of them are emotional, desire and hatred, and one of them is more cognitive, delusion or misunderstanding. So you can see how even in the sutta, it kind of weaves together the affective and the cognitive parts of what mind does. So these qualities of um, absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of delusion give rise to all the beautiful states of mind. And we'll talk a lot more about those later in the retreat. The qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion in different combinations give rise to all the painful or afflictive qualities of mind. And that's the um, area that I'd like to talk about tonight. So with these painful uh, emotions, there are basically two things that need to shift as we undertake our practice with them. The first is that our attitude has to come much more toward an accepting relationship to them. Normally, when these states come in, they're the last things we want. When I first started practicing and fear or resentment or anxiety came in, it was the last thing I wanted to see. I came here to get calm. I wanted to get peaceful. I wanted to get insight. I didn't come to get this stuff. But that attitude doesn't work so well. We can't just push those things out. So we need to develop an accepting relationship with them. The second big shift is a greater understanding of their nature. So we need to understand their particular nature, how anger works, how fear works, how wanting works. But we also need to understand their universal nature. These states are conditioned arisings. And the Buddha said that of all conditioned arisings, they are subject to the characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. Impermanence means they come, and therefore they will go. So all these emotional states, once they arise, are also going to pass away if we let them. They are unsatisfactory, and of course the painful ones are inherently unsatisfactory, so that's clear. And they're selfless in that we don't own them And they are not our identity. They're not who we take ourselves to be. They're just passing visitors like clouds. Once we start to understand them in relation to these three characteristics, they lose a lot of their power and enchantment. And essentially, in seeing these three characteristics, we see the empty nature of emotions. And when I say empty, it doesn't mean that they don't exist, doesn't mean that they aren't real, doesn't mean that they aren't something we feel but we see their essential insubstantiality. And when we see that insubstantiality, we can't take them as seriously as we did before. So that's part of the investigation and the insight that I'll talk about tonight. In working with all these states, the first step is to know what we're feeling when we're feeling that. Now, I don't know about you, but I never got taught this as a kid. My parents did not go out of their way to say, Dear guy, what are you feeling today? (laughs) Did you have a good time at school? Did people treat you well? Oh, did you feel hurt? Do you feel resentful? Do you want to fight with that guy who belittled you? This was not the dinner conversation at my house. (laughs) So when I came into meditation... I felt there was a whole landscape of my heart that I had to figure out you know, with the help of my teachers, but I basically had to figure out um, for myself with their guidance. And I just think it would be such a huge contribution to the world if we could teach children in school simply to know what they're feeling. That kind of emotional intelligence would, I think, solve a lot of the problems in the world. And there's an organization that's starting to do this in this country. They're based in Oakland called Mindful Schools. They have got this fabulous program of going into public schools and at the elementary level and junior high level and teaching kids mindfulness, using it to explore how they feel. And the changes are remarkable. People will say things like, now I like to meditate right before I go to bed because it makes me so peaceful. Or when I'm mindful, I don't get angry and hit my little sister. So it's really a wonderful program, and there are like a thousand teachers who've been trained now to take this practice into schools. It would be terrific to see this grow. And then in Marin, we have a Sangha member who runs what is essentially a Dharma preschool. She's a longtime meditator, and she has found enough parents connected to this sangha and other sanghas who want their kids to have basically a dharma-oriented upbringing. So she's gotten their permission to turn her preschool into a dharma training. So she has these kids who are like three to five years old, and she's um, telling them stories from the jatakas, she's teaching them yoga, she's teaching them meditation, and she has quiet periods that last up to 30 minutes. If you can imagine a group of 23- to 5-year-olds being quiet for 30 minutes at a time, it's kind of, there's some kind of magic going on there. So she said, when you teach kids that age meditation, you can't use words like you know, mindfulness and investigation and attention to the object. It's too abstract for them. So she teaches them with images. So she told me this one class, she had people doing yoga, and they come to the end and the kids lie down on their back, And then she starts leading them in a meditation. She says, okay, close your eyes and imagine a big lake. And in this lake, there's all the water. Let your mind become the water. And through this water, all kinds of fish are swimming. There can be a happy fish and a sad fish and an angry fish and a loving fish. But you're the lake, and you just let all these different fish swim through. Let them come and swim and go through. And she guided them like that for, for a while. And then after the meditation, she asked the kids, well, how was that? And this four-year-old boy raised his hand and said, well, I could let all the fish come, but I couldn't let the mad fish come. And she said, well, wh- why not? And he said, well, when the mad fish comes, if I don't know I'm the water, it makes me do things that hurt people. Four-year-old kid, you know, got it. When he's the water, then he, can, then he can hold it. So it's easy not to know what we're feeling. And this came really clear to me during one long retreat. I was sitting, and I was about two weeks in, and I was fairly settled. I was walking out from the meditation hall and felt I was pretty continuous in my, mi- in my mindfulness. I was noticing the movements of my feet with the lifting and the moving and the placing notes And I got down to where I had been walking. I'd walked there every walking period for two weeks, very steadily. And there was somebody in my walking path. I sort of couldn't believe it because everybody had been at this retreat for two weeks. And I thought, don't they know I've been in that path for two weeks? Did I cut in front of the line at breakfast? Lifting, moving, placing, still very mindful. I go a little farther. Are they trying to play some head game <laughs> with me? You know, they must know it's my path. What is going on? Lifting, moving, placing. And I kept walking, and I had to find a different path, so I took another patch of grass, which to my great surprise worked just as well. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't understand that. And every once in a while, I'd sort of shoot them a, you know an evil look because <laughs> they were still in my path. Lifting, moving, placing, I felt I'd really been mindful. And it was only about 30 minutes into the walking period that I realized, I'm angry. It took me that long to see it. I felt I was really present, but I missed the most important thing that was happening in my experience. I was angry. I was with the steps, but I missed the main thing that was going on. This is kind of how these uh, afflictive states or these hindrances work they fly in sort of underneath our mindfulness radar and they convince us to turn our attention to the outside situation. I was so focused on the person who had taken my path and why they were wrong and why I was right that I missed my inner process. So with all these emotional states, that's what they tend to do. They tend to grab our attention and direct it to an outside focus. And in doing that, they take us out of our own experience. When I realized I was angry, then I had the tools to work with it. I knew how to feel it in my body. I knew how to examine my thoughts. I knew how to release it. So within a minute or two, it was gone. Until I had seen it, I was just locked into the mechanism of it. And there was no way uh, for me to step out. One of the key underpinnings that keeps these difficult emotions in place is uh, some kind of view or belief about the situation. And I'm going to call this the storyline of the emotion. I'm going to come back to it later. And in my case, the storyline that kept the emotion going was I thought that it really was my walking path and they were wrong and I had a right to it. So take a look at this with anger and see if this isn't often the case, that there's a belief or a view underneath that they're wrong and I'm right. And as long as we keep telling ourselves that story, then it sustains the anger. When we turn our attention to the emotion itself, that takes the juice away from the outer situation, and then we can start to relate to it with the tools of meditation. So the first step is to name what's present. In my case, anger or resentment. In other cases, fear or wanting or loneliness or irritation or sadness or grief or envy. There's something powerful about that naming process. And so even if you're not doing noting generally during the day, this silent mental labeling that Kamala mentioned this morning, it's very helpful to name these difficult emotions. It kind of creates some space around it. Among the scientific research studies that are going on um, was a group that was studying anger management. So they took a group of people who had problems with um, controlling their anger and not letting it act out with others. And as the um, experiment, they gave them the assignment... Simply, this is all they did every time they felt anger to name it as anger. There was no other instruction. There was no other intervention. This turned out to be a really effective way of anger management. Just to name it. Like compared to a control group that didn't do anything, these people had a much more successful outcome simply by naming the emotion that was present. So there's something powerful when we name it It's like we bring a kind of wisdom to it. Now I know what this is. And then that reminds us, I know how to work with this. As meditators, we learn now we know how to work with this. So there's not just anger there. Now there's mindfulness, some awareness, maybe some compassion for ourselves, maybe some uh, wisdom that's accompanying it. So in the middle of the difficulty, we're bringing in a bunch of really helpful and positive factors just by naming it. There are certain states of mind that I see again and again, both in my own life and in, and in meditators that I talk to, that are kind of the big group of these difficult emotions to work with. So I want to uh, actually pull these out of you all to tell me what they are. And I want to suggest that all that Uh, difficult emotions that we get caught in have to do with time. Time is not necessarily a factor with the beautiful qualities. You can just see someone and have a moment of loving kindness or a moment of compassion. You can walk out the door and see the light of the sunset and have a, a moment of joy. It can come in a moment, go the next moment, it's all fine. But a difficult emotion that we get caught with that makes us suffer is going to have something to do with extending over time or relationship to time. So this is one of the qualities, we'll say, past to future. The other thing that difficult emotions are about is pleasure and pain. Our life as human beings is full of a succession of moments of pleasure and pain. Sometimes very strong, sometimes rather subtle. But it's the memory or the holding on or the accumulation of those moments of pleasure and pain that cause the stickiness in living. So there are these two factors, time and pleasantness. And out of those two factors, you could say there's, if you, like, if you liked eighth grade algebra, you'll, you'll love this, um, we'll put time on the horizontal axis going from past to future And we'll put the pleasure level on the vertical axis going from pain up to pleasure. And if you don't like uh, eighth grade algebra, then just remember this makes four chunks. There are four ways to combine these. So let's look. I want to say that there's a difficulty motion connected with each of these four quadrants, if you want. So I want you to tell me. If something has been pleasant in the past, that's this quadrant, Here's the center. It's this quadrant. Pleasant in the past, which means it's no longer here. No longer available. Very pleasant in the past. What emotion do we tend to have for that? Okay, I want, desire is something people often say, but I think desire is really about projecting into the future. Let's say it's not there at all anymore. Sadness. Grief. This is the source of sadness or grief. Something that was pleasant in the past but is no longer available to us. An old relationship, an old friendship, an old house, a death of a loved one. This is the terrain of sadness and grief. Okay, Unpleasant in the past, and I want to make it a little more specific. Unpleasant or painful related to another person. How do we react there? Anger. Anger. Don't. If someone has done something unpleasant to us in the past, we tend to hold it with anger or resentment. So that's the second big one, okay? Pleasant in the future, you've already said this. If you're looking forward to something that's really gonna be delightful, this is desire. The whole field of desire, yearning, longing, wanting. Unpleasant in the future, you're looking forward to something that... Fear. Fear, anxiety, nervousness. And just a week ago, less than a week ago, I had to give a presentation in front of the Marin County Board of Supervisors. Spirit Rock was applying for a, a kind of big change in our overall building plans. And Jack Cornfield was out of town, so I gave the presentation and I had a sense of dread about it for about two weeks before I had to do it from a combination of the sense of responsibility and not knowing the people and the crowd and all of that. Um, Fortunately, it went really well and we got approved. (laughs) So, I mean, it it was so irrational, right? We don't need to dread these things, but it's just the way the mind works. I dreaded it. So, I want to suggest that these are the four kind of primal emotions that human beings have dealt with for a long, long time, which is sadness, anger, desire, and fear. One subset of the anger is if it gets directed to ourselves. If we feel that we've messed up and either hurt ourselves or somebody else, then what comes across is uh, guilt or self-judgment. So it's kind of a powerful variation on the anger piece. So these are the five I want to talk about tonight. Um, uh, Sadness, anger, self-judgment, desire and fear. So, let's start with a pleasant. Let's start with this quality of desire or wanting. This can come up often in retreat. You know, maybe particularly because this atmosphere is fairly devoid of sense pleasures. You know, the meals are great, the nature is beautiful, but there are long stretches in between those meals where the body may be aching and the mind is running and meditation is kind of boring. So desire often comes in at those times to kind of provide us a little bit of a pleasant fantasy realm. So we may find ourselves wanting our home, our comfortable couch, dinner with a friend, a TV show, something that we've really enjoyed from our home life. This happens a lot. But one of the things that we see if we start to explore this, this movement of desire is there's a little bit of a bittersweet quality in it. Because thinking about that person or place or thing is kind of pleasurable, right? You bring in that memory, that wanting. brings in an element of pleasure that's, that's comforting. But at the same time, we don't have it. And that not having it is suffering, subtle or, or big. There's that missing that's there. So desire always has these two things. There's like a, a beautiful thing and there's, there's this longing which has a, always a current of frustration or unfulfillment, lack of satisfaction in it. Because for some, some reason, we never seem to want what we already have. Ever wanted a hand at the end of your arm? <laughs> No, but if we didn't have it, we would really miss it. But we don't want what we've got. So this desire force came through really clearly. A number of years ago, I was teaching a retreat in Italy, which is a lot of fun because uh, I just found the Italian yogis so kind of honest about their emotions and fluent. They had a fluency with their emotions that I didn't have until I started practicing. They are able to be in touch with how they felt and to talk about it. Of course, there were a few cultural changes we had to to modify. We held the retreat at a rented uh, Catholic nunnery. And they were used to renting it out to other people. And when they set up for lunch the first day, they wanted to bring out carafes of red wine on the lunch table. (laughs) So we we had to adjust that part of the the meal serving. And then there was an espresso machine right outside the meditation hall. So as soon as people left, ding, 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 ding. (laughs) wake themselves up. So early in the retreat, this young man came in. uh, We were talking through an interpreter. And he explained to me that he was really having a hard time settling in because he didn't think he really wanted to be here. So I said, well, what's going on? What what are you thinking about? He said, well, I'm not sure I wanted to come on this meditation retreat. I said, well, what were your options? He said, well, some friends invited me uh, to go on a 10-day trip to the Caribbean with them. This was August, so this was the holiday season, um, and I, I, you know, could have gone to the Caribbean. And I said, "Why, why didn't you?" He said, "All the plane tickets were sold out." <laughs> so I came here. So I could understand why that would create a little rub. So we were the consolation prize, and he really wasn't so into being there. But then, what we did is we just worked with this factor of desire. You know, when you think about the Caribbean and the beautiful beaches and being with your friends and swimming and everything, there's an element of desire there that you would like. And that makes this situation look not so great. But maybe the problem is not this situation is bad, but it's the thinking about the other that has you stirred up. So see what it's like if you don't think about the Caribbean. And then he came back in a couple of more days And that advice had totally worked for him. He said, okay, I let go of the vacation idea. I just planned on being here. I really settled. I'm arrived and now everything's fine. So take out the force of desire. Present moment is often not so bad. The storyline underneath his unhappiness was, if I had been in the Caribbean, I would be happy. And not having it, I can't be happy. But in fact, that was just a belief. And when he let it go and could just be here, it was fine. It was the wanting that had made for the discontent. In meditation, once we settle in, the desire force tends to go not so much to like homesickness, wanting to be back in our comfortable homes. It starts to find itself within the field of meditation itself. So one remembers a sitting that one had in an earlier retreat, or one remembers a particular insight that came when one was doing walking meditation on another retreat, and often that's what we want back. You know, the peace of the sitting or the uplift and the the kind of um, inspiration of that insight. Or as we go through the days here, The concentration will come together. We'll have a sitting where the body's very relaxed and the attention is naturally present moment to moment to moment. We'll go out and walk. We'll come back very excitedly for the next sit. Not there anymore. And often there's a strong desire. How can I get that back? How can I make that happen again? So in in sitting meditation, I look for this quality of desire through tuning into the body. And when it feels like the body is tensing, and going forward, that's kind of a sign to me of the desire force being there. Then I often don't know what it is I'm wanting, but if I look in my thoughts, just to identify, well, what am I thinking about, sometimes that shows the content of the desire, and then maybe I can let it go. But I look for that kind of straining forward, just top, we could say toppling into the next moment, and then the counter is settle back into this moment. And there's a sense physically of moving backwards and more grounded in the body, dropping a little lower with a sense of relaxation. Okay, there's a um, word for the general tone of negativity, which is um, aversion. And I wanna talk a little about that. a general tone of negativity or, or disliking It has lots of different forms. It has the forms of um, hatred, anger, ill will, impatience, irritation, uh, depression, despair, grief, judgment, blame, resentment, and you can extend it. There are lots of flavors of this. So how does it feel when this state of aversion is in the mind? Everything seems inadequate or not capable of satisfying us. There's a story from the time of the Buddha. He was standing in a grove with a a group of monks. And as they were standing there, this jackal ran out of the forest. And then it stood in the clearing for a minute and then it bolted and went into the hollow of a tree. And it lay down in the hollow of a tree but it didn't stay very long. It popped up and ran into a cave where it lay down. And then it got up out of the cave and ran off again back into the forest. And the Buddha pointed it out to the monks and he said, "Uh, monks, did you see that jackal? It wasn't happy in the forest. It wasn't happy in the clearing. It wasn't comfortable in the tree hollow. It wasn't comfortable in the cave. It wasn't comfortable uh, walking, standing, lying down, or sitting. So the jackal blamed its discomfort on the forest, on the clearing, on the tree hollow, and on the cave. It blamed its discomfort on standing and walking and sitting and lying down. But he said the problem wasn't with any of these. The problem was that jackal had mange. Uh, If you're a non-English speaker, mange is a very itchy skin disease that is just very hard. Animals get it a lot, dogs and jackals. It's very hard to bear. The jackal had mange. Well, when we're in a state of aversion, it's kind of like the mind has mange and nothing feels good. Everything rubs us the wrong way. Classically, there is a general antidote for aversion. And that's kind of why I wanted to mention that. And it is loving kindness. So the meditation that Sally led this afternoon is the antidote that the Buddha recommended for this general quality of aversion. So if it's a state of uh, despair or irritation or grief, The practice of loving kindness really helps to uh, clear that. So sadness is one form that um, this not liking takes. Comes out of a disappointment or loss. um, Very significant feeling. It often makes us feel uh, helpless. We often feel helpless in uh, the grip of this kind of grief or loss. And there's the worry that if we open to it, uh, we might get overwhelmed by it or we might drown in it. And so we can, even in meditation, tend to keep it at bay, not let ourselves open the doors to feel it fully. But this is only a worry, that it will be too much, that we can't accommodate it, that it will overwhelm us, that we will get lost in it. So we need to trust in the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom and compassion to be able to hold whatever sadness is in us. And most of us in life have had disappointments, have had losses, have had some uh, degree of sadness or grief. So it's something that's a frequent visitor in meditation retreats. And just an encouragement to let that sadness come, let it express itself if it's there, open to feeling it. Because it's only by feeling it that we can allow it to arise and then manifest its impermanence. All kinds of grief seems to me will pass through if we give them enough time and space. They kind of have their own schedule, but if we open the channels and let them come, our, our wisdom is capable of holding them while they go through that process of release. Then a different kind of um, aversion of the quality of anger often comes when we sit and remember old events in our life, people who have hurt us, people who have um, caused us harm. So it's very important to learn to meditate with this emotion also. With anger, the body gets tight. There's a kind of burning quality. And the thoughts that come tend to be thoughts of blame, um, that the other person is wrong and we ourselves are are right. So very helpful to meditate, um, to meditate with this. It's really important to listen to these thoughts because we find that the blaming thoughts are the things that keep the anger going. Anger is kind of a fiery state and what sustains the the fire, the fuel for that fire is the blaming thoughts. If we drop the blaming thoughts, the fire will die out. That's all, really, that needs to happen. But as long as we keep tossing on more logs, the fire will keep, uh, will keep growing. But it's difficult because it's like, if I don't think those blaming thoughts, it's like I'm condoning what that person did and that wasn't right. And sometimes that's really true. You know, the problem is we're telling ourselves, I'm right and you're wrong, but sometimes that actually is true. So, what do we do then? So, this is a story from the Dalai Lama. He said that when he was still living in Tibet prior to 1959, when he escaped to India, he knew this monk, one of many monks in one of the monasteries there, and he judged this monk as just having kind of middling practice. And the Dalai Lama escaped to India, living now in Dharamsala. And then uh, something like 25 years later, this monk showed up in Dharamsala and asked for a meeting with the Dalai Lama because he likes to, to visit with people who've managed to escape. So, of course, the Dalai Lama inquired after his welfare and uh, said, how was your time there? I understand uh, you were in prison. And the monk said, yes, yes, I was in prison for 20 years and I often felt I was in danger. And the Dalai Lama said, uh, did you feel you were in danger of being tortured? And the monk said, um, no, I was tortured, but that's not what I meant. I meant I was in danger of becoming angry, but I didn't. The Dalai Lama said he had to revise his opinion of this monk's <laughs> practice. So that demonstrates a possibility I mean, it's an awesome possibility. It's way beyond what I feel myself capable of. But it's a possibility that we can apply to lesser situations. Maybe someone does harm us. And that's clear. And we see clearly that was unskillful conduct on their part. And our reaction may be of anger, but it is possible not to hold that. It is possible to let go of those blaming thoughts, even though we're right So for me, there's only one thing that has persuaded me to let go of those blaming thoughts, and that has been the pain of anger itself. I would be in the middle of a meditation retreat, very open and sensitive. I mean, my body had been just dropping tension for weeks or months. I'd be in a very open and sensitive place. Some situation would come up and I'd get angry in my thoughts about it, and my body would go into this strong contraction. And I wouldn't be able to release it. I'd feel like I was just in the grip of, of a big pair of pliers. And I'd still keep thinking the blaming thoughts. And finally, you know, after enough times, it got so unpleasant. The suffering of anger itself was so strong that I became deeply motivated to let go. And I was was able to learn to do it better and better. I still get caught from time to time, but I know the way out. If I can just get to the point of letting go of the blaming thoughts, then the anger will decline. And I began doing it out of concern for my own welfare. But of course, I see how it also benefits the world. If I can release my own anger, then I don't spill it um, on others. So in Buddhism, it's often the case, we come to this understanding that what benefits us also benefits others, and what benefits others also benefits us. The two aren't really opposed. So this quality of, of burning ourselves in holding anger, you know, before it goes to another, is pointed to by the classical texts in a couple of different ways. One thing they say is that becoming angry at somebody is like picking up a hot coal to throw it at them, but it burns us first. And the other way that it's described is that becoming angry is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will get sick. So, if we feel ourselves being angry, you know, it's not to judge that experience. We all will have anger from time to time. So, it's not to consider ourselves a bad meditator or to try to suppress it. Really, inwardly, you want to let anger just rip, be able to rip within you without any censorship. Outwardly, you want to be really careful about how you express it. But inwardly, in meditation practice, you want to let it come on as fully as it is wanting to. And then investigate it, explore it. Explore how it's created, how these thoughts uh, build it and sustain it and explore the impact in your own mind and body. And that will give the encouragement and the direction to be freer in relation. When this sense of anger or judgment gets directed to ourselves, then it becomes a very heavy weight to bear. It affects our confidence in the world and our ability just simply to feel good about ourselves. It seems in the West we have kind of an epidemic of this quality of self-judging now. Here it's so often in, uh, in retreats, as something people are working with. Some years ago, a group of Western Buddhist teachers were meeting with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala and asked him how to work with this problem in the meditators that they met. The Dalai Lama couldn't understand what they were talking about. Not liking oneself? What do you mean? Can you explain this to me? How does this come about? And then he, find, he had to go around through all the Western teachers in the room, and there were about 20 of them, and say, do you feel this? Yes. Do you feel this? Yes. Do you feel this? Until all those teachers acknowledged that this had been a difficult part of their own practice. And then he started to understand. But he said in Tibet... Children are so valued and so loved by their parents and extended family and community that they don't grow up with this sense of being inadequate or unlovable. It's just not part of their culture. So the storyline or the underlying belief with self-judgment is something like, and all these storylines I'm suggesting are really for you to investigate for yourself to see what the truth is for you. But it's something like, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough or I'm not lovable enough. But it's simply not true. You know, especially, I mean, it's, it's almost ironic, it's sad, but it's ironic that meditators have this problem. Because you all have devoted you know, a lot of your life to developing um, love and compassion and wisdom, you know, to benefit yourselves and the world. And if there was a group of people that I would say are good people, this kind of group is it. You all have a commitment to integrity and uh, developing positive qualities. So from my point of view, as I've met with you, you are good people. But it's so hard for us to feel that ourselves. And it's so hard to have confidence in that. This is one of the reasons why the practice of loving kindness is such a powerful force in working with this, because when we start to feel that loving kindness is really alive in us, even if we're feeling it for other people, like friends, family members, benefactors, children, pets, we know that there's something really good inside that's alive and awake and manifesting in us. So the presence of loving kindness within us gives us a lot of self-confidence and a lot of trust in our own goodness. So it's a very powerful practice in many dimensions and this offsetting of self-judgment is a big one. And the last of these uh, sort of primal emotions I want to mention is fear. Um, I love talking about fear because uh, it was my teacher. For many years, this was the main hindrance that I worked with in meditation and I learned so much from it. I, I can honestly say I don't have any regret about going through all the fear I went through because it woke me up in so many different ways. I also feel that if you take any one of these hindrances, which is your primary one, and you really work it to reach a, a strong degree of freedom, you'll also know how to work the others. It's not like ha- you have to learn everyone anew. But through working fear, I felt like I kind of came to terms with all the difficult emotions that um, I've experienced. So with fear, I had it a lot in the early years of my practice, and I hated it. When it first started to come, and it came on strong, I absolutely hated that state of being in fear. And finally, um, one of my teachers gave a talk that opened the door for me. And what he said in the talk was, see if you can bear the physical sensations that accompany fear. So that's what I took as my challenge because I could grapple with the physical experience of it. So I just started to feel anytime fear would come, I would feel how I felt in my body. I would feel that tightness in my abdomen, that kind of fluttery energy that starts to rise through the chest Maybe the kind of sweating under the arms, a sense of lightness and lack of uh, solidity that comes with fear. And I would ask myself, can I bear this? Because with fear, the curious thing is, we we come from a place of feeling, yeah, well, maybe I can bear this moment. But the belief is the next moment is going to become unbearable. Something disastrous is going to happen in the next moment but that's just another view. That's the storyline of fear. Something terrible is about to happen. But if we come into the moment and ask ourselves, can I bear this moment? Then maybe the answer is yes. So I learned to bear the physical expression of fear. Then I turned to the mind and I said, what's that flavor? What's that mood like? The closest I could get was it was a wanting to run away from, want to flee. And that was hard to get close to because the, the, the movement is, I want to flee. So it was really hard to bring mindfulness to touch that bare emotional quality of fear. But I learned to do it. So I was able to bear it in the body. I was able to bear it in the mind. And I no longer quite believed something disastrous is, is going to happen. But I was still resisting it. So then my teacher said, okay... If you're going to really accept it, could you accept this fear being here for the rest of your life? That became the acid test. So I asked myself that question the next time fear came. Could I accept this for the rest of my life? And the answer was, no. (laughs) No way. Of course I couldn't. So then I said, why? And I said, well, I couldn't enjoy music the way I like to. I couldn't merge with the sunset the way I like. I couldn't fall in love. So I kept resisting it. And then I realized that I was giving away my own peace. I had a choice. I could either find peace here and now through accepting my experience, or I continue to fight it. And finally, I didn't care what I was going to lose. I accepted it. And I said, okay, if this state is like this for the rest of my life, it's okay with me, and it truly was. And when I did that, the power started to drain out of the fear. By that full acceptance of it, just the way it was, it lost some kind of grip over me. And ever since that time, it's come again many times, it's never had that kind of grip again. So I felt that I now know how to work with this visitor. And over time, it's almost become a friend. You know, when it came again around the supervisors this past week, it wasn't pleasant, but I didn't mind it being there because I knew that I could just practice through it and that it was going to pass. This is why all these emotions are safe. They're all going to pass. So all we have to do is open, let them come, and by their own nature, they'll also go. So truly, we don't have to be afraid of any of them. We open to them we, with real acceptance. We let them express themselves. They're not fun, but by their own nature, they will also pass. So we don't have to make them go. We don't have to make them go away. So I'd like to just close with this poem from uh, Rilke, the German poet. Uh, it's from a little book called The Book of Hours. And the scenario is that he's imagining the words that God says to us on the day that we're created, uh, just as we're launched into this life. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your memory. Go to the limits of your longing Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Now give me your hand. So let's just sit for a minute together. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going, no feeling is final. So thank you for your attention. And just a reminder that the next sitting uh, will be at 9 o'clock rather than 9.15. And uh, it was open-ended on the schedule. Maybe that's why some people didn't come. because. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.